I'm Jason Lustig, and welcome to Jewish History Matters. Today, I'm sharing an important and timely panel discussion about the future of democracy in a global context. We'll be looking at the erosion of democratic norms and the attacks on democratic institutions within Israel and the U.S., placing all of this in a global context. And we'll be thinking about why history matters when we consider important contemporary affairs. I don't think that I need to enumerate all of the attacks on democratic institutions and processes at home and abroad. But this is a conversation that I've wanted to have on the podcast for a while. When we consider, for instance, Israel's inability to form a government with an unprecedented three elections in the span of 12 months, from April 2019 to March 2020, which in some ways represents the dysfunction of Israeli democracy, and also the general move in recent years towards authoritarianism in varying countries around the world. My hope is that this conversation and the panel of three prominent scholars who are joining us can shed some light on these issues of critical importance. For this conversation, I'm joined by Dahlia Scheindlin, a public opinion expert and strategic consultant specializing in research and policy analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, regional foreign policy, democracy, and more. Dahlia has been an adjunct lecturer at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, Tel Aviv University, the Jezreel Valley College, and Eastern Mediterranean University in Cyprus. She's a co-founder and columnist at 972 Magazine and is currently a fellow at the Century Foundation and a fellow at Mitvim, the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. She also co-hosts the Tel Aviv Review podcast. Also on the podcast today is Joshua Shanes, who is an associate professor of Jewish studies at the College of Charleston. Josh's research focuses on Central and East European Jewry in the 19th and 20th centuries. And he's published widely on modern Jewish politics, culture, and religion, as well as issues surrounding democracy and fascism in academic and popular venues, including the Washington Post, Slate, Haaretz, and elsewhere. And finally, we're joined by Jeremy Surrey, a colleague of mine at the University of Texas at Austin. Here at UT, Jeremy holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs, and he's a professor in the Department of History as well as the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs. Jeremy's primary research interests include the formation and spread of nation-states, the emergence of modern international relations, the connections between foreign policy and domestic politics, and the rise of knowledge institutions as global actors. And Jeremy's also the host of the podcast, This is Democracy. I hope you find this episode to be productive and fruitful, 
as we think through some of the most important issues of our time, through historical and global context. As you'll find, there are perhaps more questions and issues than we can consider in an hour, and I trust that this will just be a starting point for a continuing conversation about the history of democracy and its prognosis for the future in a global perspective. Hi, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Nice to be on. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining me for, I think, a really important and a really timely conversation about the future of democracy in a global context. We're going to be focusing a lot here on Israel. We're also going to be talking about the U.S., but I think that what is really going on here and that what we can really think about and engage with is a kind of a, a crisis of democratic governance, which is taking place around the world. And we can talk about, in some ways, the usual suspects of uh, some countries that have autocratic tendencies or where these things have been uh, stewing for a number of years, if not decades, places like Russia, Turkey, Poland, uh, Hungary, uh, so on and so forth. But we can also talk about the challenges in terms of what has been taking place in the U.S., uh, also in Israel. What I want to get us started off by thinking about here is what is this global crisis of democracy? What does it mean to you? How do we put it into historical context? And why does all of this matter? I think we as historians can recognize that uh, democracy and anti-democratic movements go in waves. It's not to say that these waves are universal. They aren't. And it's not to say that they're uniform. They aren't. But they still exist. And uh, we had a wave of movements and institution building around democratization with the end of the Cold War, in part because of the recession of Soviet power and because of the growth, uh, not just of American power, but of capitalist institutions and financial incentives that went along with a certain kind of democratization. What we're seeing now, I think, is a reversal, in part because those institutions, those promises, those developments did not live up to their expectations for many people and many societies that claimed to be benefiting from them. I think that's part of the story in Eastern Europe. I think that's a large part of the story in the Middle East. And it's part of the story in the United States. And you're hearing an anti-globalism attached to an anti-democratic rhetoric. And that's not a surprise for this reason. This is not just a backlash movement. It's a deeper critique of the promises of participation and prosperity that were made to people around the world by the United States, but by other democratic powers, promises that were made in the late 20th century, for which in our very unequal world today, many groups, for many different reasons, are saying, no, this system doesn't work for us. We'd like to go back to a different system or develop a different system, perhaps an autocratic one, where our guy, and it's usually a guy, will provide us what we need rather than relying on these faceless global democratic forces. I think that's the space we're in today. I would jump in here and say that we could revise this understanding of the present moment, not just as a rollback of the number of democracies, but as a real struggle over what kind of democratic or semi or limited or restricted or eroding democratic rules we have. We can call them illiberal democracies. I like my own term, proto-authoritarian societies or autocracies. But I think we should remember that in the long-term trajectory, there are more democratic countries or democratizing countries today than ever before in history. We are seeing a rollback of the tendency towards liberal democracy as the preferred form of government, and that the reason for that has a lot to do with the kind of backlash that Jeremy talked about. But I think we should also characterize what it means. I think that that illiberal 
type of democracy is predicated on what I would consider a sort of reductionist, maybe revisionist, but certainly archaic or ancient form of democracy as limited to only majority rule and even within majority rule, very restricted participation. And it's bizarre how this is making a comeback after thousands of years, as if there is no need for other, you know, more elaborate institutional protections of minorities, definitions of human and civil rights, protections for residents who are not citizens, the value of opposition, and all the institutions that have been put into place to protect that. And I think that the struggle here is between, again, democracies that cultivate institutions that place checks and balances on consolidated strongman, and it is usually a man, kind of power versus those who seek to erode those institutions, trying to redefine democracy as something more often ethnocratic and nationalist and consolidate power as much as possible and vilify and delegitimize both political opposition or anybody who doesn't quite fit into the nationalized or tribal definition of who the citizen body really is. And that's the struggle that I think many people are opting in those countries where we see the rollback to say, you know, this liberal democratic thing it's overrated. It's not for us. I think that's the heart of the question. Do they mean it? What do they mean when they say that? Why are they coming to that conclusion? Who are the they? To what extent are they being manipulated by leaders telling them, you don't need all this liberal democratic stuff. It's bad for us. And that's what I'd like to figure out. In terms of Jeremy's comment, I, I certainly agree. And, and it's more his field than my own that the, the failed promises are part of what we're seeing right now. But from my own perspective, I, I tend to think that focusing too much on materialism and material causes is, is a danger. And I, I tend to view nationalism in particular as something that really comes to be coming out of identity issues. People act against the material interests all the time. And we've seen that from World War I, most obviously, but since then as well. And so it seems to me that when we see a resurgence of ethnic nationalism, we need to look at sort of deeper roots of these sorts of things. So for example, in the United States, looking at the way the U.S. has been a kind of ethnic nation for so long and the kind of cultural threats that have led to its resurgence as that right now. You know, in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, even those who recognized the ethnic nation of America thought they had escaped it, that we've come past it. Now we're broadening the definition of nationhood to a more liberal definition of nationhood. And, and lo and behold, that turned out to be more of a, um, a blip in the history rather than the trend of the history so far. We'll see what comes in the future. Dahlia's comment, again, I agree, and I think it's, it's quite important. But for me, two things, I guess. First of all, Democracy as the rule of the majority is certainly a danger in terms of minorities. We see this in Israel, where they're trying to pass the law that 61 votes is all that matters, and the Supreme Court has no say, and that which is the only defense the minorities in Israel have, any kind of minority whatsoever, not just Palestinians. But also in the United States, where you see a minority manipulating the rules to control all levers of government. It's not even that the minority is being ignored, the majority is actually being ignored. But then the other thing I've been thinking about is in terms of people saying, and both of you said this, that maybe we don't want liberal democracy, maybe we want autocracy. In my experience, people often don't admit that. You can see by their choices, by their votes, by their language, that that's what they want. But they often define this as democratic, and they don't see the flaws in that. They don't see what they're doing is not democratic at all. And that's something that's also worth exploring, I think. I definitely think that one of the key issues that, Dahlia, that you brought up is not just about whether or not a country is a democracy or whether or not it's democratic, but about what kind of democracy it is. In as much as I think that if you look at countries around the world, um, especially actually the most autocratic countries, they want to call themselves democratic. Like look at North Korea, right? The Democratic People's Republic of Korea. They have the veneer of democracy and anybody who looks at it understands that it's not at all a democratic country, but they go through the motions of having an election. Of course, there's only one party, you know, one person who you can vote for. 
in such an election. But I think that it's it's important for us to understand that it's not a yes or no question as to whether a country is democratic or not, but that it's a question of what kind of democracy is in practice there. And this applies, again, both to plainly autocratic countries that pretend to be democracies and also to countries that want to see themselves as a democracy, but where there are autocratic tendencies or or democratic norms are being eroded or otherwise under attack. I think it's a really important point, and uh, it's a point that many historians have commented on as well as uh, political analysts, too. The presumption of political legitimacy since at least the late 20th century, really since the mid-20th century, has been a presumption of some form of popular sovereignty. And popular sovereignty, as a number of scholars, most famously Edmund Morgan, have written about, popular sovereignty is actually an invention of the 18th century, and it's a minority opinion on what political legitimacy really is until the early 20th century. It's now the standard claim to political legitimacy. And you gave the example people always point to in North Korea, which could not be less democratic than it is still claiming to be a people's democracy, uh, as did all the communist states of the mid-20th century, as do uh, all, as far as I know, all autocratic states today. What's interesting about that is it's a claim that there is a popular connection to the leader, that the leader is giving voice to the people. But of course, that's not the same as democracy. That sounds like democracy, but it's using the label democracy for something that is not necessarily democracy. Uh, going back, of course, to the Athenians and the earliest writings on democracy, mob rule and democracy are two different things, uh, even a majoritarian conception. I just think it's an interesting point that, that that example, I always like it because it indicates that even those countries that are absolutely not, not even remotely democratic feel that global legitimacy is gained by at least calling themselves a democracy, which, which supports your point. And I think it's also domestic legitimacy as well, Dolly. I mean, the, the claim that Kim Jong-un makes is not really that he's the grandson or great-grandson of the founder. That's important. But it's really more that he represents the Jirshi principle of the Korean people, that, that, that he has their principle in mind. That, and that, to us, seems like a prima facie assumption that all leaders have to make. It's actually a very, very modern claim. Jeremy, isn't this going back to Rousseau, really, the, the distinction between the general will and the will of all, right? The leader represents the general will. We may not realize it even, but it's what we really want, if only we knew the best, and that he represents. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think that uh, really when we talk about the rollback and the erosion and the illiberal democracies, we're talking about, in many conversations, the post-Soviet space, where these countries became sort of transitional democracies and never really did develop a deep democratic culture. And then they're already being undermined you know, by kleptocracies and corruption and, and poor democratic practice. Now, I mention that because I think that if we look at that spectrum where the U.S. is considered the example of the world's democracy. Israel likes to think of itself and Americans like to think of Israel as a sort of satellite democratically of America. And the other end of the spectrum, what we're really seeing is the limits of the stories we tell ourselves. The weaker the democratic institutions, you can call it anything you like, you can try to prettify it. It doesn't matter. If your democratic institutions are not real, if they are covering up deep structural, institutional, and historic injustices, they are vulnerable to extreme erosion or even possibly takeover by non-democratic forces. And I'm just going to stop there because I feel like that summarizes exactly what's happening both in the U.S. and Israel right now. Although I will elaborate to say that the reason I make that accusation is because I think both America and Israel suffer from an original sin of non-genuine democracy. Both of them have very profound structural flaws in what we like to consider their democratic culture. 
we don't have time to go through all of them, but in case that's not clear to any listeners, let's just give a brief example with relation to Israel, a few brief examples, let's say. Israel doesn't have a constitution, which most people know, but the reason it doesn't have a constitution is because the first Knesset wasn't even elected. The first Knesset was supposed to be a constitutional assembly. It failed and transformed itself into the parliament. So that is already an original sin. We don't have this anchor. We have an evolving constitution. And the other major example, I think, that we can just start off with is that for all of Israel's history as an independent country, other than about six months, Israel has been governing a portion of its population that it controls through a military regime. From the end of the War of Independence through 1966, it governed part of its Arab population through martial law. And since 1967, in June, we all know, the occupation has governed Palestinians through a military regime. And these are not marginal things. These are not flaws in a democracy. These are undermining the very question of whether it's a democracy or not. And I would say there's a spectrum, I'm not saying Israel is North Korea, but America, I'll leave it to my American colleagues. I mean, I am American, but I'm representing the Israeli view. We don't need to explain, hopefully, the DNA of America's very crooked democracy. I mean that in the sense of crooked timber of humanity, not crooked in terms of America as a corrupt country. Although, hey, we could argue that too. I agree with that completely. I, I really worry about this saying, obviously, America isn't a democracy. Obviously, Israel is a democracy. I worry about that language. Democracy is a spectrum, of course. But even there, vis-a-vis -vis Israel, for example, and this will apply to America as well and other countries, Israel is a democracy because all of its citizens vote and can determine its, its course. But of course, that's a circular argument because it ignores the fact that so many people aren't citizens who live under the Israeli rule. And that's same can be said of American history to a large extent, right? That those who are viewed as part of the body politic, they were able to vote and control the country. But that's a circular argument, it's a circular fallacy, because it ignores the fact that people can't vote. They can't determine their own fate. And I, I worry that we ignore that at our peril very, very much. I'll just add two things that I think just build on these, these wonderful comments. One of the ways in which the original sin, as Dahlia put it, uh, plays out is that uh, all democracies, particularly the United States and Israel, but every democracy that I've ever studied, is always a bounded democracy. So the question has to be democracy for whom? For much of American history, our democracy was very constrained. At first, it was a democracy only for white male property holders, really. Uh, then it was a democracy for white men, many of whom were not property holders. And then it became a democracy that included some women, first in states before the, the 19th Amendment is passed in the United States, right? And only really recently have we come close to something called universal suffrage, but we've never actually reached that. There are all kinds of limitations, the most obvious one being on former felons. Someone who is, uh, has served their time in many parts of our country, Florida in particular, but Texas also, often has a hard time ever voting again. And there are all sorts of other things that we could, we could talk about. You've already brought up the examples of, of Israel. One of the struggles we're dealing with now is an old struggle over democracy for whom. What we're calling partisanship in our societies are actually groups of people who believe that either the democracy should be theirs and only theirs. That's where a lot of the xenophobia comes in, which as Josh pointed out, isn't imagined. It's not just material, right? It's, it's an identity issue. Or those who say, we haven't been included enough, now you need to widen the democracy for us. That is not a fight over whether democracy, it's a fight over which kind of democracy, democracy for whom. And I actually think that's the fundamental debate in both the United States and Israel today. Then there's a secondary element to this, which is honestly, to me, what makes figures like uh, Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu so dangerous, and I think ultimately so self-defeating which is they start from that argument, I want democracy for my people and not the others. But then when they see that they can't succeed with that, 
when they see how profoundly unpopular they are, they actually then move to non-democratic arguments. And that is what is striking just in the last few months in the argumentation of both of these men. They have gone from arguing that we will have the right democracy for the right people to saying, you know what, forget about democracy. All that matters is just holding on to power. I think that's ultimately a losing argument, but it's also scary because it's a violent abdication of democratic principles by those who are supposed to be the guardians of those principles. And the funny thing is that nowhere was this more on display than in Israel's election cycles over 2019 and 20, because for a decade, Netanyahu and his kind of political camp have been arguing that we should redefine democracy as majority rule, majoritarian democracy. I mean, this became a mantra for 10 years up until Netanyahu and his supporters couldn't get a majority. And then all of a sudden, it was perfectly fine to just throw that all out the window or, you know, it wasn't fine. It was confusing for, I think, the right wing in Israel because they couldn't put together a coalition on that argument anymore. Surely that moment when that, you know, that Netanyahu or Trump or their parties suddenly recognize their profound unpopularity or the fact that they're not a majority, don't represent a majority, that that's the moment where you see the stresses on the institutions, where you see the faults in the forms of governments. You know, in the United States, for example, you see that the fact that the power of the Senate, which is the most anti-democratic of all of our institutions, is blindingly in our face now, which then has the consequence of the undemocratic nature of the Supreme Court and other appointments and so on. You see those fault lines as soon as uh, this moment comes because the people in power exploit them. I thought you were going to say that's where you start to see lies, because that's when you start to see, you know, Trump saying I had the biggest crowd at my inauguration ever because they can't or whatever the versions are, because they can't stand to acknowledge the reality. And Netanyahu, of course, his most famous lie being, well, the Arab votes don't count in Israel for coalition purposes. Of course, they do count. They should count. But maybe that's debatable about whether it's a lie. But that's where you start to see real manipulation of ideas and narrative and falsehoods to perpetuate undemocratic rule. And I think this is the point where uh, law does become so important, right? And it's ironic that the figures who are abrogating democratic principles are the ones who claim to be law and order figures. They're actually the lawless figures in this sense. The struggle then becomes with the stress on these institutions, can we legally defend the purposes of these institutions? Because what the non-democratic actors are now trying to do is turn the democratic institutions to non-democratic purposes, to use the law to actually justify a, a power grab. And I think both uh, Trump and Netanyahu think of it that way. I think they actually are, are cold-eyed about it, right? It's power at all costs. In both cases, it's to keep themselves out of jail. And so self-preservation requires actually trying to fool us into using democratic laws for non-democratic purposes. The struggle becomes a struggle over defending, defending the democratic purposes of those laws. That's a lawyerly defense. That has to be a popular defense. That has to be a ballot defense. That's where Weimar Germany failed. It wasn't that Weimar Germany had horrible institutions or necessarily worse economic circumstances, that it didn't have the legal structure in place, and it didn't have the established activity around the defense of that legal structure to defend the democratic purposes of the law. That's what I think the United States and Israel are struggling over. That's what the U.S. election is about this year. And I think that's what, whenever we get to the next Israeli election, that's what that's going to be about. A lot of what you guys have been bringing forward have to do with the question of fundamental structural challenges within democracy and the ways in which the tools of political power are utilized by the people in power for self-preservation. I think when we look, for instance, at the question of the Israeli elections of 2019 and 2020, where we had three elections within the course of 11 months, it's a radical breakdown of the entire system of parliamentary government. 
And I think it really showcases the structural challenges of the parliamentary system that exists within Israel. Um, I'll just kind of contrast this to some extent to say that that people often point to gerrymandering, right, in, in the U.S., for instance, and say that this is a opportunity for uh, politicians to choose their voters as opposed to the other way around. And when you look at the parliamentary system and the way in which that functions in Israel, and to some extent, it's true in other countries as well that have a parliamentary system, but it allows the politicians to choose when the elections are in a way that would perhaps be most beneficial to them. And this is a structural challenge. The party in power could theoretically, if they want to gain more power, they can choose to have an election when they want to, right? So the there's a certain instability to the parliamentary system that, that exists in and of itself because it requires a majority rule in the parliament, in the Knesset, in Israel. So I think that part of what is interesting in Israel when you look at those elections is it highlights those structural challenges, right? Netanyahu is threatening to potentially have another election. If it will give him more power, he can get out of this kind of agreement with with Benny Gantz like before he has to give up the premiership. So ultimately what is taking place here is we can see the structural faults within the system in itself and also that we can see ways in which the democratic norm of the election itself is undermined because for a whole year, basically, it seemed like it didn't work. And that, I think, in many ways, is one of the main challenges when we look at the erosions of democratic norms in countries like Israel, countries like the U.S. It is very much about, are these institutions like the election? Are these institutions like the, you know, sort of various agreements between different parties to work together, which then they never actually do? Do they actually fall apart? But it's also the extent to which these things are undermining the public consciousness. So as a series of elections seem to not work, then that makes people feel that the entire systems of elections are pointless or that you know, it makes people more cynical about it. And that, I think, is, is in many ways the danger towards established democratic systems, right? You know, we're talking about democratic countries that don't have a very long tradition of, of those institutions and norms. Well, you have other countries with longer traditions and those can still be undermined you know, if they are put under enough stress, if the leaders are publicly trying to undermine them and trying to sow uh, discord about the very idea of voting, about the very utility of doing so. Right. Cynicism is always one of the most threatening elements of democratic practice, right? Because people have to believe that even if they don't get their way, that they have an opportunity eventually to get their way. You can't believe you are a forever loser, because if you're a forever loser, then you don't want to play the game anymore. And so I think that's one of the real, the real challenges right now in both the United States and Israel. Because first of all, there are groups that established and learned how to hold power. It's not unique to this moment. Dahlia referred to this in different periods of, our, of American history in the past as well. It's a different group now, though maybe somewhat related to prior groups. And uh, there's a sense among many that they are holding on to power at all costs and that they've grabbed certain ways of, of doing this, uh, the most obvious being the use of counter-majoritarian courts. That's actually been the strategy. Uh, we were talking about Senator Mitch McConnell before we came on. This has actually been his strategy above all. It looks like now, right now he's more interested in that than even holding on to the majority in the Senate, that that is the end all be all. And that creates cynicism, uh, unfortunately. It also creates an extreme reaction. And so it, it's a polarizing element. What democracies need is they need people who have strong views, strong progressive or conservative views, but also believe in the process and believe in working together and believe that there's value in that. We have norms that assume that, and we're supposed to have structures. And I think what you're getting at, Jason, very well, is how these structures of cooperation and participation across party lines, across ideological cleavages, across tribal cleavages, how those have broken down. The most obvious example that came up already before is the U.S. Senate, 
where the presumption was until recently, and we can talk about who's to blame. In fact, there's blame on both sides, but until recently, the presumption was you did not railroad judges through. I'm not just talking about the Supreme Court. You had to have a consensus in the Senate before someone was appointed to a major federal judgeship, Court of Appeals, as well as the Supreme Court. That's broken down. That's broken down clearly with each side trying to ram its own through. And, and that makes it very hard then for us to believe in the impartiality of the judiciary. We have to believe that the people appointed to the judiciary represented some kind of consensus that they're not just there as Republicans or Democrats. They're supposed to be giving judgments as judges. In this context right now, it's hard to look at courts and not see them in a, in a more cynical way. And that encourages the very anti-democratic sentiment and behavior that you were describing so well, Jason. It's an interesting parallel to Israel, but, it, but in some ways a contrast, because the cynicism that you talked about with relation to democratic participation is, well, we have lots of cynicism in Israel, but we do not have a problem with democratic participation the way America does. Now, this particular election, Americans look like they're going to turn out in high numbers, but traditionally Israel has far higher participation in elections, including in all three recent cycles, despite all the chaos. However, the comparison comes when it comes to delegitimizing institutions. And in the case of Israel, it has the manifestation of this has been a long standing, I would say at least 10, 13 roughly years of assault on the judiciary by Israel's right wing forces who have developed, for lack of a more neutral term, developed a narrative that the judiciary is somehow the holdout of these elites who are against the popular will and therefore trying to preserve liberal left-wing interests while denying the true nature of the nation, the, the, the imagined community of nationalist, ethno-nationalist, true Israeli body politic, is what we were trying to say. Now, that narrative was, it was getting stronger and stronger throughout the decade. But what really happened is that Netanyahu, the prime minister, suddenly realized that his legal cases were closing in around him. And the closer he got to indictment, and then after his indictment was when Netanyahu himself joined the all-out assault on the judiciary to delegitimize it. Now, this is not measured in you know things as objective as voting, but we can measure it in surveys. And what we're seeing is decreasing legitimization or decreasing sense of legitimacy and trust in Israel's judicial institutions. Now, the reasons why are hotly debated in Israel. The right wing says it's because they're so left-wing and liberal and they're persecuting our prime minister. And the rest of everybody else, and I say everybody else, meaning the center and the left, this is all polling based because that's what I do, believe that it's because of that rhetorical assault on the judiciary, which has been given a huge boost by the prime minister for the purpose of delegitimizing their investigation and prosecution in his corruption cases. And you know, I can't adequately capture the danger, I think, of that erosion of trust in, in the courts for democracy. And it's not just the courts, it's the courts, the attorney general, it's the state prosecutor, it's the police, it's every layer of the judiciary in Israel. But it is a counterpart to what you're talking about, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, Israel, of course, doesn't have a bicameral legislature. It doesn't have an executive branch. The only check on the power of the ruling party is the Supreme Court, is the courts. There is no other check that we have in the United States. We have many checks. They have none. This is it. And when you mentioned, by the way, of people who are forever losers and can never, ever win, of course, all I thought of was the Arab parties in Israel who have never been in the government and by consensus of Jewish parties will never be invited to a government by definition. It's hard to imagine how they're still so patriotic in playing the game considering that they're being told to their face they can never play, they can never win, ever. In terms of the United States and just in general, the democratic strength, you know, no democracy is perfect in the sense that whatever rules we come up with, they're going to be flawed. So the United States was flawed from the beginning, setting aside women, setting aside African-Americans and so on. We have a system that, that with the Senate that is not democratic. We have other aspects of the system that is not democratic. 
even I'm not that old, but growing up in the 70s and 80s, I always had a sense that more or less the government represents the will of the people in the last election, more or less. You know, that the small Democratic states kind of balance out the small Republican ones and more or less the courts, the legislative branch, the executive branch, whoever was president got the most, you know, yes, theoretically it could happen. They got less votes and they would still win the Electoral College. But for the most part, whoever won, won, whoever's ruling the country was supposed to. That's being broken down now, it seems to me. If you don't have that sense, the cynicism that you were talking about is going to grow because you have a sense that it's not working. Uh, because of gerrymandering, because of the Electoral College, because of the Senate, because of voter suppression, there's going to be a growing sense that this government does not more or less represent the will of the people. And that's not going to change with the next election because of the judiciary. It won't change because the Senate's still the Senate. It won't change because gerrymandered districts are still gerrymandered districts and so on. That's a concern to me, a very big concern to me. One of the things that's very interesting, it's also very troubling, but it's, it's I think, important to point out, again, the parallels that we see between, say, for instance, Trump and Netanyahu. Which is to say that I think that both of them uh, have been kind of pulling cards from each other's playbook, as it were. And whether we're talking about Netanyahu calling things fake news or Trump trying to encourage people to, uh, quote unquote, watch the polls, which is really just a way to try to suppress the vote, uh, which, of course, Netanyahu has already been doing for years now in terms of trying to suppress the Arab vote in Israel to try to observe, as it were, voting in uh, in highly uh, Arab uh, parts of different cities in Jerusalem, certainly. When you say observing, you mean recording with cameras in order to intimidate Arab voters coming to the polls. Exactly. I mean, I was trying to find the right way to describe it. If you, if, Could you like, describe it factually? It's bad enough as it is. No adjectives needed. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, I think what, what we're seeing here is a cohort of anti-democratic rulers in different countries, Israel and the U.S. are only two of them, that are all kind of like cribbing notes from each other about how to turn a democracy into something else. And I think it's a very troubling uh, trend. And also openly supporting each other, not just uh, Trump and Netanyahu, but also Orban and, and Hungary, for example. Israel is now close to the FPO in Austria, the, the far-right Freedom Party of Austria. Poland, of course, and, you know, they're all it, Putin, obviously, and Trump. And let's not forget Israel's recent love fest with Serbia, if it lasts. Indeed. I think we need to remember that they're all not just cribbing notes from each other. And by the way, Netanyahu, is, as I'm sure you all know, but maybe your readers don't, he doesn't just say fake news. He says it in English. He, he actually uses the English phrase fake news which is remarkable. I think it's quite striking to say that, that he has to dip into the English phrase because it's, it's not the meaning of the phrase. It's the idiom itself captures so much more than the two words that you can't really translate it. You have to just say it in, in, in English. I agree, except that I, have to, I just want to remind people that Netanyahu has been nothing if not consistent. And I think if anything, uh, you know, I should attribute this line to somebody else who said it to me. But, you know, if anything, Trump is learning from Netanyahu. Netanyahu has been attacking the media for promoting fake agendas in various forms and languages and narratives since the 1990s. He really kind of captured the populist techniques of generating a sense that we, the genuine people, are being oppressed or suppressed somehow by these elites, the minority who have an interest in denying the truth of who we are and manipulating you know, reality, and kind of delegitimizing them already from the 1990s. It's been a feature of his political rhetoric and appeal for a very long time. Of course, Calling the entire Israeli media left-wing and liberal is kind of funny in itself, considering that so much of it is not. But it's, it's something that's the launching pad for a much broader sweep of attacks. I mentioned the courts already, but let's not forget the attacks on civil society, particularly left-wing civil society, pressure on left-wing and liberal-leaning higher education institutions and individuals. This is much more widespread than just the government institutions. Yeah. 
one of the things to consider, especially as we try to put it into historical context, is, um, again, this, this process of the repeated elections in Israel. I recall as these were happening, people were posting and writing things, making comparisons between Israel's repeated elections and other countries that had a series of three elections in 12 months or less, and basically how they all collapsed in terms of being a democratic country shortly thereafter. Obviously, I mean, it's almost like a, like a fallacious historical argument to say, oh, these things happened like that in the past, therefore they're going to happen again somewhere else when they follow a similar pattern. But it is striking you know, to think about the collapse of democratic forms of governance in different places and the ways in which it may be happening perhaps under the radar in a certain way. I think one of the key elements about these repeated elections is also how close they are. It's not simply the, the number of elections. Uh, democracy does not do well for, with close elections. Democracy does much better when you don't have close elections. It doesn't mean they have to be blowouts. There's a lot in between that. But there's always a problem, just a technical problem of figuring out how you count the votes. And we all know that when things are close, you can count things in different ways. But then there's the secondary issue where those who feel they were very close to winning uh, believe they've been cheated somehow, that they were there. And if something else, if someone hadn't written a letter at the last days of the campaign, or if a judge hadn't made a judgment at this time or another, uh, and you can explain your loss, therefore, as someone cheating you. Whereas when there's a sizable margin, you can still be upset, but you realize you have to do something different, appeal to different kinds of people. That's why it is important that those who are in these elections find some way to reach out and shift the balance of the voters. I think the most important element of the U.S. election this year will be not simply whether Biden defeats Trump or not, but by how much, if he does. Is it clear that there is some consensus, maybe not a consensus on Biden, but a consensus on getting Trump out? That changes the nature of the debate, and democracy does better in that context. Uh, democratic institutions are very poor at adjudicating close elections. They always have been. That's a very interesting point, because I was just thinking of the examples where big blowout elections are actually the spark uh, in authoritarian countries for major upheavals. It's what we saw in Ukraine. It's what we're now recently seeing in Belarus over the summer. It's just an interesting contrast that those are the elections where we see that the winner declares huge majorities and people just don't believe it. Whereas when a challenger, maybe this is going to help us make that distinction between countries that are more democratic than authoritarian, but teetering and countries that really are authoritarian, where people you know, reach a bursting point when they see an 80% victory for Lukashenko, for example. Whereas in democratic, even if they're backsliding democracies, you know, the close election can be hotly contested, but they should have institutions to contain them from slipping into rebellion and violence, which is what we saw in Israel after three cycles. I mean, it was ironic, but even I, as an analyst and an observer and political scientist had to say, this is in a weird way, a testament to the strength of some of those institutions, because without a government, without a permanent elected government for over a year, institutions did not stop functioning. There was there were demonstrations. They were mostly peaceful skirmishes on the margins, but nothing like Belarus, of course. And the country continued to function until a government was created as unstable as it may be. So just to point that out, we do see the difference of systems that have democratic institutions in place as partial as as the practice might be. It's a great point, Dahlia, and I think one of the things we have to say is when autocrats hold what are really sham elections, it's not that they're winning a blowout, it's that they're creating a, an unbelievable number. No one wins 80%. It's very hard to win 80% in any setting, right? And what's always striking to me is that autocrats, because of the ego and the legitimacy they've identified with being superheroes, right, have to give themselves 80%, or I think Saddam Hussein at one point said he had 99 or 100%. I mean, you couldn't find one person who voted against him. 
I don't know about you guys. I've never been in a faculty meeting where we get 80% agreement on anything unless it's simply, you know, better parking spots for all the faculty. Be careful. We have almost 100% agreement on this call, which is always dangerous. Well, that, but I think if we pushed it hard enough, we'd find <laughs> We would find the narcissism of small differences. So that's, so I think maybe the, maybe the way to put this is that there's, that democracies do well when it is a believable margin, but a margin that is hard to deny. The five to 10%, right? And the U.S. system, by the way, is set up for that purpose. One of the things the Electoral College does is it takes an election that's relatively close. Think Nixon and Kennedy in 1960, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, and it makes it look like a bigger win. Yeah, that can be a good thing, although it, you know, <laughs> it has the opposite effect sometimes as well, as we saw in 2016 and, and other times in 2000. I think the interesting thing in 2016 is that it was obviously very close. And in fact, Hillary Clinton won more votes. That's a fact than Donald Trump, 3 million more votes than Donald Trump. But she acknowledged the legitimacy of Trump's electoral college win. We can argue that we should change our system so it's more about the popular vote. That's a fair argument. But within that system, as Donald Trump will have to acknowledge if he has fewer electoral votes, that the system actually did create a clear winner and loser based on the electoral college. Again, we might not like that, but there really wasn't dispute over who won the Electoral College. Now you're talking as a historian, not a futurist, because it could very well be uh, that in the near future, we will see breaking of that. Yeah, I think it'll be hard, Dahlia. I think you're right. It doesn't mean people won't try that. But I think that'll be very hard, especially if, again, if in this election and future elections under the system the United States uses now, if there are clear victors in the states that produce the electoral votes, the nightmare scenario back to closed elections is if battleground states are so razor thin that there's an actual basis for disputing. I want to shift our conversation a little bit, actually, to something that Dahlia brought up just a moment ago, which is that in many ways, I feel like all four of us are in agreement on a lot of these issues. And I want to ask this question, why is that to some extent? What I mean by that, it's important for us to engage with this question of what it is that we learn from history that all of us as people who are historians or political scientists and think about sort of how we get to now and what that teaches us about the present as well as about potentials for the future. What is it about the history of democracy, about the history of autocracy, about the history of societies that leads us towards in some ways being very much in tune on this set of issues, both in terms of understanding the developments, for instance, in Israel and the U.S., as part of a much bigger global phenomenon, as opposed to just within their own context, and also in terms of thinking through the different forces that are at work in the recent elections in Israel and what's going on in the U.S. and so on. Well, one thing I think we all share as, as scholars, as historians, as people who have looked at the long durée in a, in a way, is that democracies are not permanent, that even the most secure democracies are still fragile. And that the choices people make, the choices leaders make, the choices voters make in particular years have enormous effect. We, in a sense, are all arguing against the sort of structuralist argument, which would say that once you get the right structures in place, whatever those would be, and it works long enough, well enough, you know, it's a, it's a kind of clock that winds itself, uh, which is often in the United States, at least, the way we talk about our democracy, right? We can even find political theorists who will say, you know, it's just a matter of getting it right. I think all of us share a sense of the fragility and contingency of democracy. And uh, that's what we're living through right now. That's the reminder to all of us. I agree completely. And also that democracy is not natural. It takes constant struggle. I think that what's happening now in American Israel, but certainly Eastern Europe, elsewhere, that, that's a lot more natural. 
that doesn't take much effort. Just letting it happen, that it will descend or ascend, as you will, to that state. Democracy is not a natural structure at all. My God. And that's, I think we all recognize that as well. Democracy is a project of engagement. It's not about going to elections every four years or every two years. It's about engagement between elections. And non-engaged citizens cannot protect a democracy. And that leads me to the first point that I was originally going to make about why I think we all agree. And to my mind, it's because we've, we've all observed that democracies can be democratically overthrown. It's happened in our history. It's had very personal impact on the Jewish community. And we talked about Weimar Germany before. I think the major problem, to my mind, what's bothering me right now is how do we protect democracies against democratic threats to democracy, the democratically elected leader who wants to overthrow? Do we have constitutional protections against them? This came up very recently. I was thinking about the Israeli basic law in elections, which has a clause that says that parties cannot be elected or candidates if they undermine the Jewish and democratic character of the state. Very problematic. But there is a democracy protection in there somewhere. They cannot be elected if they are uh, racist, which has actually been put into place to ban the Kahana party and various protections. But America has no such protection in its constitution against candidates who would undermine democracy. And you can imagine why I was thinking about that ahead of the American elections, because I do think we have a candidate who is also the incumbent who is undermining American democracy. So it has to be protected. And the second thing I think for me really highlights why we have to look at the current situation as very threatening is the notion that falsehood is very intimately connected with non-democratic behavior. I take this from Hannah Arendt, of course, who links falsehood to authoritarian rule from Solzhenitsyn, who says that falsehood is intimately connected with violence. I'm connecting political violence with authoritarian rule. And when I start to see a democratic society or a society that wants to be democratic or more democratic, increasingly grasping at lies, falsehood, manipulation, maneuvering of the truth, alternate facts, whatever you want to call it, it's not always a black and white lie. But we know these falsehoods when we see them. I say they're up to no good. They are not committed to protecting democratic institutions. And we know where this goes because of the first two points that I made. One of the things that I think about sometimes is about the challenge of a bubble, which is to say that some people might listen to this conversation and say, oh, these folks are in some kind of echo chamber. Why is it that we find by no means universally, but by and large, you find such a consensus, certainly among the handful of us who are on this podcast. But what is it about this long view of history that informs these kinds of perspectives on the nature of democracy and on its future in Israel and America and around the world that leads to this kind of consensus that I feel like we're having here and that some people will look at and almost disregard because they say that there's too much consensus and not enough dissension. There are more dissenting voices than you, than you realize, actually. I, I mean, I, I see them on social media, in academia. Even beyond that, I think somehow the very project of academia to teach critical thinking, to question mythology, to question assumed truths, I think it lends itself to a certain political viewpoint that is conducive to democracy in the broad sense of liberalism and not very conducive to certain forms of extremism that rely on faith in the religious or secular sense of the word faith. That might be part of it. You know, there's a, I used to be Hasidic in the Hasidic world, but talks about the value of being alive and hot rather than being cold. At least you're alive. You're fighting for something. Or it reminds me of Hamilton when, uh, when Hamilton went against Aaron Burr because at least he knew what Thomas Jefferson stood for. I value that. And I think social media actually does stoke that. And that's, that's actually a good thing. Circling back, Jason, 
about academia, we also value that, being alive and, and stoking engagement. And that's going to lend itself to a certain approach, I think. We have more information at our disposal in the current moment than ever before in history. We could read news coming out of Calcutta if we want. We could read, you know, we could read news coming out of Tibet or anywhere else in the world. And we can certainly read news from Republicans or Democrats or, you know, right-wingers, settlers, uh, anarchists, left-wingers, whatever you want to call them, aliens, as Netanyahu calls them. And there's kind of no excuse for not doing that. Well, the only excuse I have is that Facebook, I found, and social media makes it quite difficult for people of my political leanings to access the real extremes on the other side. I've been searching for QAnon and all I can find are liberal articles about QAnon. But other than that, I think that everything is open and available and, and we should all be making the effort to do that. It's not much of an effort. It just, we just need to remember. I remember when I was in graduate school, I used to go to the reading room at the Yale Library, the Sterling Library, to read foreign newspapers. And I would get them, you know, three, four days after they were published. I was reading last week's news from Israel, last week's news from uh, Russia. Now I can read it in real time. And for those of us who do research, this is, this is wonderful. And we can read things critically. But I do think one of the problems is that it allows uh, for sometimes things that are not information or that are not serious to look serious. We have to have filters. Uh, the solution is not to have everything. Uh, QAnon is not a serious news source. One should look at it to understand that community, not to understand the news. You can read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and of course, they do have certain biases, but you are getting a pretty decent, an effort at providing us with facts, factual news. That doesn't mean they always achieve that, but that is their effort. And those of us who have written for those newspapers and others know they actually fact check your work and they don't just ask you your ideology. QAnon and others, and we can find alternatives in different political spaces. Those are not news sources. Those are not news sources. And so I don't think when we have a consensus, Jason, we should be inherently skeptical of it. We should ask ourselves, are there legitimate points of view that we have not included? If we're having a discussion of climate change, it does not mean we have to include a climate denier. That is not a legitimate point of view because it does not have a scientific basis to it. If we're having a discussion about immigration, we don't need to have an arch-racist xenophobe, even if that arch-racist xenophobe has a million Twitter followers, because you cannot make the argument that certain immigrants are racially inferior. That is not a legitimate argument. It does not have scientific or evidentiary base to it. We have a consensus, I think, on democracy in this discussion, because after lots and lots of study, uh, it's quite clear the one thing we agree on, that democracies are fragile and that they are historically contingent. We differ on many things. I think the four of us differ on what one should do now and who the greatest threat is, and what's going to happen in November in the United States, and what's going to happen in Israel. We disagree on many of those things, but we share, based on the evidence, a basic consensus on the historical development of democracy, that it's a relatively recent phenomenon, it's a problematic phenomenon, it has never been perfect, this was Dahlia's point, it has always excluded people, and Josh's big point, it seems to me, is that it's always threatened from within. Those are consensus points, I don't think that makes us a bubble. I think that makes us serious people who have looked at the evidence on this. I think that the issue is that when we look at history, history has something to teach us. And I think that the more that we study, the more that we learn, the more that we recognize some of these things that you guys have been pointing out about the fragility of democracy, the fact that it is not God-given, but it's man-made or human-made. And that uh, part of the issue is that I think that a lot of people who might disagree with us on a lot of issues would not agree with us about certain basic historical realities. That when we say that America has an original sin, 
that we say that the American democracy, the democratic project is based on the exclusion of people that America is built upon slavery as opposed to built upon freedom. Haven't they read the Constitution? I know. But what I'm saying is that, that a lot of people who might disagree with us about a lot of these issues would not agree with us about the basic fundamental starting points. And I think that's the challenge of debate in some ways. The challenge of conversation at this moment is that in some ways people are living in totally different worlds when it comes to how they look at things. And um, I think that as people study the past and learn more about the past, certain perspectives, not one, but, but certain points of view almost become self-evident in a certain way. What I'm trying to say is that history has something to teach us. And that's why when I think about why history matters, right, this is because um, I think that a lot of people don't come to these kinds of issues with a deep historical perspective. I think that as you do come with a deep historical perspective, certain things become clearer. And I think that that is one reason why, for me, it's very important to bring people into conversation who have that serious historical perspective. And whether or not that that leads to a bubble, I don't know. I think that it has to do with some respect to the way in which this kind of deep critical thinking leads to sort of an understanding, at least to a certain understanding, right? So for instance, like you mentioned QAnon, right? Some people anyway are living in a fantasy world. For those of us who are involved in this conversation, we are very much not living in a fantasy world. And I think that that's a very important starting point for any kind of conversation, that unfortunately, that the world that we're living in, more and more people are living in a fantasy. And that relates to COVID, that relates to climate change, that relates to the questions of democracy, and so on. Right. I mean, I guess just just back on this history point, and we could think about the debates over 1619 and this commission that Trump has created which did not include any historians, actually, on how history should be taught. It tells you something right there, right? We, we're going to have a committee that looks at the virus that doesn't have anyone who has any really serious medical background. We're going to talk about history without anyone who's a historian. That's because we're all sick of you damn experts. That, there you go, right? Uh, and that's an old story too, right? Being sick of experts. But what Jason says is absolutely right, that sort of what history does, right, is it takes you out of the narrowness of your position in this moment, Right. The ahistorical way of thinking, which every child has, I've seen this in all of my children at least, right, is the whole world revolves around me. Everything was made for me. You study history for just a little bit and you realize, no, the world we live in was not made for us now, and it could have been very, very different. And many things happened to get us uh, where we are. I mean, Jews know this instinctively, right? There's nothing that actually brought us to it. There's, it's very hard to be uh, a Jew who believes in teleology because of our experience as Jews. So I think that's the humbling element of history. The danger, Jason, is that people who want to mine history to simply justify where they are today. So it's not the historical references. Being a historian, as we all know, or being a historical thinker, right, is to go back and think about the many roads in the past and the many routes that have taken us to where we are, but that could have taken us somewhere else, and then how we can go in many different directions from where we are today. I think if we had conversations like that, that would open up a lot of space for much more agreement. Conspiracy theories are the opposite of that. Everything had to produce this. I think it's exactly correct. And I, I would just point out that people are constantly citing history. Everyone does it. It's usually wrong. Everyone's constantly citing history to back up whatever political or other ideological plan that they have. It certainly is true in, in regarding Israel. But in America now, it's never been more important. I was going to say, I can think of somebody on this conversation who had an epic, epic Facebook world war or something uh, about a particular historical event in Jewish history versus current Israeli politics. And I'm not going to any names, Josh. Uh, it does happen a lot. But I will say that, you know, I, I, on the positive side, I think of my colleague, Adam Dombey, who wrote this great book called The False Cause about the history of the lost causes, the false cause and how the monuments work. And 
He started this years ago, not realizing how incredibly timely it would be under Trump. And he makes a difference. I mean, he gets out there. He's constantly speaking. The book is selling and he's helping people understand when and how and why they were built and what they've accomplished and what what they represent and what they've done in a way that really does make a difference. It obviously matters, but he's he's making a difference. What we do does matter as historians and as teachers in the public and sphere and in the classroom. On the other hand, you know, QAnon is massive. The world of, you know, of the extreme are massive and you can't really make a difference. So, you know, I like Dahlia, I spend a lot of time looking at open pages in those worlds that I don't really inhabit personally because they are open, Twitter and, and Facebook and other places. And you can read them. Now, there's no point really engaging at a certain level because I'm not going to convince them of anything and they won't convince me. But just the fact that they, and I know that I'm being read and Dahlia, I know you're being read. Now, I know we're being read by people. Every once in a while, I get hints of it. Who's reading me? Uh, so I think that we are reading each other. And even if you can't convince them, it's going to make a difference in the long run. But certainly everyone is citing history. You know, I, I, somebody asked me once, I, I made a comment that after this is all over, God willing, we get through it, that we need a kind of denazification, the kind of thing that Germany went through after World War II. And they said to me, what does that mean exactly practically? I mean, we're not going to have re-education camps. And I said, well, I would love to see every single child in America be taken to Washington, D.C. to visit the Museum of African American History and the Holocaust Museum, those two museums alone. Every child in America. That alone would make a difference, just that historical awareness in moving us out of this moment. I just would like to make a, a, um, a case or a pitch for not only historical comparisons, but present comparisons. I mean, I do a lot of work as a comparative pol you know, political scientist looking at other cases. And it's not, my, it's not just my academic work. It actually, my academic work grew out of my practitioner work as a public opinion researcher working in, I don't know, 15 other countries, you know, many of them transitional countries. Like I said, uh, in the beginning of this conversation, you know, former communists, you know, trying to establish themselves as independent democracies, or at least telling themselves they wanted to establish themselves and become democracies. And I really feel privileged. There's no better window into understanding the processes in a deep way than public opinion. You get to hear people talk about exactly how difficult that is and what their interests are and the competition between their national and imagined ideas. And I don't like the word imagined too much because it makes it sound like fabricated. These are very real identity-based needs people have versus their material claims and all these things, they're going on around us all the time. So in addition to what I think is essential learning from history, I think that we often neglect the fact that we can see echoes of ourselves all around the world at different times. And it's helpful because we don't feel quite as alone. We realize, you know, we can see where we're going by looking at things that are happening in front of us and maybe sometimes learn, you know, what's worked and what's helped in those areas. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation in the first place is because I think that we can see the echoes of these breakdowns of democratic norms, these erosion of democratic institutions between different countries. It's a totally different example, but the example that I give often to my students when we think about the global nature of social phenomena is the attack on globalization, which is to say that we might see this as a thing that is taking place in one individual country, but the irony of it is that this is a political phenomenon that is multinational. The resurgence of nationalism, of right-wing nationalism and ethno-nationalism in various countries around the world is not just within those countries, but it's a global political phenomenon, the same way that we could talk about the emergence of fascism in the 1920s and 1930s. Right? This is not just in one country or another country, but it is a phenomenon that spans borders. And I think that one of the things that is interesting that as scholars, as people who are trying to take the broadest perspective possible, we start to realize those relationships and those connections in ways that you don't always see unless you step back 
and take that 30,000 foot perspective. And you know, bringing us back towards that conversation about the future of democracy, you know, what does that mean as we try to connect the decline on, of democratic institutions or the attacks on them uh, you know, and these norms within Israel, within the US and kind of broader global trends? Like, what do we take away from this in terms of trying to understand what's taking place in the world around us? The global significance of this is, first of all, where we started, because it helps to explain why this is happening in multiple places, but also because for two other reasons that have come up. One, actors learn from each other, whether they know they're doing it or not. There's a mimicry. And what makes the Trump-Netanyahu relationship so interesting is even though these are very, very different people, they're clearly mimicking each other consciously and non-self-consciously. There is that element. But then I think really what's at the nut, at the root of your question is that we are deeply affected by things that happen far away that we don't realize are affecting us on a day-to-day basis because the larger environment that we're in matters enormously. So we haven't talked about Western Europe really very much at all, but any discussion of the growth of liberal democracy in the 20th century would be very much about Western Europe as well as the United States and Israel. Insofar as Western Europe has had issues and problems with its democratic structures, some of which are related to us, some of which are not. If you think about the Greek economic crisis of 2008, 2009, that has a larger effect on the environment we operate in. And uh, that is connected to the Trump-Netanyahu phenomenon, even though we don't draw it as a straight line. It's changed the, the larger environment that we're operating in. Just very basically, it makes democracy less shiny and exciting and attractive for people. And quite frankly, it also opens more space for the old tropes of anti-Semitism, racism, and other, other elements of this. If I had to think of the one takeaway about like looking at the sort of ricocheting effect of the rollback on democracy, I really think it boils down to remembering that the advances that we've made in liberal democracy, such as they are over the years and in different countries, affect ultimately every person. These are not academic questions. They're not just theoretical. They're not just a Western imposition. They're about individual people being able to live their lives better, healthier, richer, more free, less abuse, and with greater ability to think and think critically and realize their humanity. So, I mean, if we let these processes continue, we can argue about whether maybe liberal democracy just isn't right for everybody, and maybe it's okay to have an autocratic society, and maybe people are better governed when they have a strongman rule who is more stable and less fractious, and maybe governments will run better, and all these tropes. But when it comes down to it, those societies will see people more likely to get arrested if they say the wrong thing or demonstrate in the wrong place at the the wrong time. Women will not have control over their bodies, jobs, or economic opportunities. And governments will steal our money and our taxes and not be accountable for what they do with it. And they won't pay any taxes themselves, just to give an example. I mean, those are just three examples. But I think that sometimes these the problem with this conversation may not be that we all agree, but if people listen to us and they say, well, you know, maybe they think we're just academics and it's all theoretical. It's not. It's about my life and, you know, all my colleagues on this call. It's about your lives and your kids' lives and your wives and partners and parents' lives, too. I think it's for me personally, it's to see the humanism of it, that, you know, (laughs) people are people. I was brought into the Holocaust studies, for example, the 90s with Chris Browning's Ordinary Men. It had just come out when I started graduate school. And I remember him thundering about the fact that these are men, not Germans, first and foremost, and that shaped my entire approach to history and into my entire approach to politics. And you have to understand human nature and, and having this sort of comparative approach, whether historically or geographically or otherwise, 
gives us that ability to see that, which is why I'm so concerned about the fragility of democracy. I see that historically and uh, across uh, cultures. One of the things to keep in mind here, I know that, that we don't have a lot of time left. So this, I think, will be the final set of issues to think about the varying modes of analysis that we've talked about here. And I think it was Jeremy who, who made a comment earlier about how as historians, we understand the contingency of historical development, that things could have gone in any number of different ways, any number of pathways that didn't take. So that's a type of historical analysis. And yet we see so many people and perhaps ourselves included analyzing the present moment and having an almost teleological or uh, predestination focused emphasis on what is taking place, where we look at the move towards authoritarianism or the erosion of democracy in different parts of the world, whether we're talking about Israel with Netanyahu and whether we're talking about America and Trump's attack on the voting system and all these different things. And there's almost, I think, a sense of doom relating to what is coming that it doesn't jive with the way in which we're talking about the past. I know that it's dangerous for us to try to predict the future by any means, but I guess the question here is when we understand that history and human development it can go any number of ways, and that's the way it was in the past, and that's certainly the way it is in our present moment as well. Do you think that there's a prognosis in a way that allows us to understand the rebounding of some of these democratic norms, democratic institutions that are under attack, you know, as opposed to just a continual sliding downwards, as the case may be? Yeah, yeah I'm actually somewhat optimistic, um, and maybe that's just because of who I am, and I, I like to be optimistic. But as a historian, I actually think these kinds of moments are historical turning points, and we overuse that phrase, but they are historical turning points because things can enter a deeper slide or they can actually turn around very, very quickly. And the narrative for why things turn around, which I think is more likely, but by no means guaranteed, is that the challenges we've dissected here today are the challenges that are also motivating people to come together around issues as they have not come together before. A few examples of this. Uh, there is more support around the United States now for the federal government to help people with health insurance than there has ever been before. The Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, is more popular than it was than when Obama was president. That's because of the suffering that people are going through in, in all of our societies today with COVID, but it's also because people fearing that they will lose what they have are actually mobilized. There is more attention to racial justice in the United States than ever before. The Black Lives Matter movement was the largest social movement in American history. And the majority of the people who participated in the vast majority of what were peaceful protests were white Americans, white Americans who actually were the winners of the system as it was. I've been talking to lots of business leaders. This has been a reckoning for big corporations, not all of them, recognizing they need to address these issues. So the positive trajectory is if this moment of crisis and decline awakens people, particularly a younger generation, there will be in this election in the United States, for the first time in 30 years, there will be more millennial and Gen Z voters than there will be uh, baby boomer voters, if we get the high turnout that we're expecting. We'll see. That can change everything. Now, they can turn out and be cynical young voters and say to hell with it all, and then we go into a deeper slide. Or they can come out and say, you know what? especially because we have a racist president, we better stand up for racial justice. And especially because our healthcare is under attack, we better stand up for this. You could see more consensus in the United States in some areas than we've had in a long, long time around these issues. Just one more piece of point on this. If you take issues such as women's health, by any means have a majority in the Senate or on the Supreme Court that support these issues, but you have larger numbers of Americans than ever before saying that 
women should have more control over their lives. And you have larger numbers of women stepping forward and making this a major issue. So I think you could have a very positive trajectory come out of this. My concern is that that's not guaranteed. My historian's perspective says this is the moment people need to recognize it's important to stand up for these issues and come together. And that's why I believe the Black Lives Matter movement will look back on it and say it was one of the most positive forces, not perfect, one of the most positive forces in our society in the last few decades. Well, as the other historian, I guess I'll I'll just say that I I do agree that we have to look at history. Contingency is vastly underrated in history. But at the same time, we do look at forces that, you know, so for example, when I teach World War I, and I'm sure Jeremy do the same thing when you teach it, I teach about sort of conditions of possibility that push towards World War I. And I list eight or nine of them, the arms race, the alliance system, cultural malaise, just lots of things before you get to the assassination of, of the Archduke. It, nothing was inevitable. The Holocaust was also not inevitable. We see what's pushing towards it, but people made lots of decisions and lots of times over many years that lead to things happening. I don't think there's a conflict here, a steer, as they say in Jewish. I don't think there's a conflict at all because we are looking at the moment. And, you know, Jeremy, you've just inspired me. I, I really, I, I'm leaving this podcast feeling much better than I did when I started, which is great. But I see conditions of possibility. They could go the way you said. I see other conditions that could go very, very badly. I don't know what's going to happen. I wouldn't dare make a prediction. I do think that history allows us to understand forces towards things. You know, I, my article in Slate was titled, This is a Turning Point in American Fascism. As all of you know, we don't get to pick our titles. We write the articles and somebody else picks the title. I would not have picked that title because there was never a turning point per se. There is things getting harder or easier, better or worse as every week passes. And and that's my historian sort of way of, of looking at it. I think that we have to remember that most of these transitions, I, Josh, I like what you said about, you know, it's not one turning point. Most of the kind of democratic erosion that we're seeing, especially in the cases that we're focusing on Israel and, and the U.S., but in some many of the other places as well, it's a process of death by a thousand cuts. There are many points along the way where citizens who do try to embrace the kind of norms that protect us and can help us advance can stop and say no There are many mechanisms to do it, whether it's civil protest or through the institution of the elections or other kinds of activism. I completely agree about Black Lives Matter. And I think that's why engagement is so important. So I I don't think it's an inevitability because it's a long, slow death of democracy. This is a bit associative, but I was going back to um, also, Josh, what you said about outlining those conditions that put into place, you know, grand scale collapse or explosion. And one of the ones I really keep coming back to is disinformation. I mean, I'm just thinking about the Dreyfus affair and how much the Dreyfus affair was motivated by mass manipulation and framing, of course, of of Dreyfus. But that framing took place on a whole web of lies and disinformation about who was doing what and a lot of suspicion and confusion as a result. And I think that really what ties all these periods of collapse together is an inability to agree on facts. Now, I don't know if it's new, right? Everybody thinks that the age of We live in an age of alternate facts and it's never happened before. That's just not true. There's been manipulation of facts and empiricism and science for as long as those terms have existed. But I think that every new manifestation is evil in its own way. And maybe the best we can do is strive to get back to, you know, the constant uncovering of what counts as empirical facts and agree on them, even if we disagree with our counterparts about how to deal with them. And I think with that combination of attitudes, like knowing that it's a process, it's a long, slow process. There's many things we can do along the way to protect democracy. And that it all starts with insisting on facts and not manipulating them 
and then having an argument or a discussion, I just think that has got to help us at least move down the right path. I want to thank all of you guys for a really great conversation. I think a really important one. I feel like there's so much more to talk about just coming off of all of your comments just right now and throughout our entire conversation. With time permitting, we could have gone for longer, but that just indicates, I think, how important these issues are, that there's so much to talk about. And my hope is that this conversation and this podcast will help to fuel that continuing conversation, both among ourselves, but also as people are listening to this and thinking about these issues, both right now and also even after the election as well, because I don't think that these issues are going away. This, I think, is a really, really important and really pressing series of questions that are just so important. So just thank you guys so much for being a part of this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, it was great. And thanks to you for listening to this important conversation with Dahlia Scheinlin, Joshua Shanes, and Jeremy Surrey. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.